The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is suspicious, Percy. You won't know who to trust. Welcome back, fellow spy nerds, to the Spies Like Us podcast. That is the podcast, of course, where we discuss the representation of tradecraft on screens, large and small. We've uh, got a large screen offering this month. We're doing um, The Spy That Came In From The Cold, 1965 British Cold War spy film based on the 1963 novel of the same name. With me, as always, is Fred... Say hi to the nerds, Fred. Hi, nerds. Fellow nerds. <laughs> so you're saying you've been uh, uh, reading a lot of Karay. Yep. Yep. You got me hooked on it. Um, All right. Yeah, I read, uh, like I say, I had an, an anthology book that just so happened to have uh, Call for the Dead, A Murder of Quality, Looking Glass War, and A Small Town in Germany. And uh, I think it's a shame that they haven't. Uh, they've made movies of some of his, of his books, but not all of them. And of course, the Carla trilogy, he's best known for. And uh, Carla, of course, is his uh, opposite number in Moscow. And that starts in with that Tinker Taylor. Tink, tink, Tinker Taylor, right, right, right. Yeah, that starts with Tinker Taylor, which I know you've done. Then the Honorable Schoolboy. Nobody's done a film of that. And Smiley's People, which, which is the third What's, one. What's your favorite that hasn't been made into a film so far? Boy, yeah, I really one. like, I just, I really like uh, Honorable Schoolboy. And um, Little Town in Germany is, is kind of frightening, too, at the end. It, it hits you at the end, kind of like what this one, Spyro came in from the cold, hits you uh, cool. with its surprise and, ending. And you say not only does he write, you know, good spy stories, but he's like, you're telling me he's actually a really fun writer to read. I, th anything, of course, I'm not an expert to say so, but any reviews, I've read a lot of reviews. Most of them say he's not just with spy literature, but that he's, he's considered a great novelist in considered literature too. So yeah. he transcends the genre and is up into literature from everything I've All read right. about him. Oh, there's been a lot of reviews about him lately because he just passed away, as you know. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, we definitely regard him as the king uh, around here on this podcast. As you said, we have covered him before. I think this is our fourth outing because, uh, of course, we have done Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. We've also done A Most Wanted Man and mm -hmm. The Night Manager uh, mm -hmm. television series. Um, so, yeah, this one, this is his – okay, so – his first two novels are more like murder mysteries, right? Although they mm -hmm. do, they do feature a retired spy. This is his first that really is like focused on the great game. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny. Yeah. And those two murder mysteries, uh, Smiley is the Sherlock Holmes kind of character. Right. And this one, um, this one, the year is not stated, but it's uh, um, it typifies activity that would be uh, from the early 60s. Uh, it has to be at least after 1961 because the Berlin Wall is up. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, I'm really surprised that he turned this around so fast. Like if the wall went up in 61 and he's writing this all already in 63, that's astounding to me that the Berlin Wall 
such uh, has transformed the landscape so dramatically and practically overnight. Um, well, not so, to mention uh, ripped from the headlines. Hollywood had to know that this would be a hot movie because of its being so topical. I can't remember another one. I mean, the only one other one I remember that was so topical was the China syndrome, uh, which was about that meltdown right about the same time that there was the meltdown in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You mm. might not remember that being young, younger, uh, but my gosh, they couldn't have better PR for that because that movie about the China syndrome ha came out around the same time as that actual meltdown in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, so in say, the same way, this was very topical too. Right. Right. Con absolutely. Contemporary events. Um, our featured agencies, uh, almost nobody gets named uh, here, but we can definitely tell who they are. Uh, we have a fictionalized version of MI6 uh, versus uh, Eastern German intelligence, which would be analogous to the Stasi. Uh, that was, of course, the Eastern German secret police that worked hand in hand with the KGB. Mm -hmm. There is a very brief appearance of a CIA agent at the beginning of the film. Uh, it doesn't impact the story uh, at all. Um, uh, I believe CIA agent is actually, I think it is listed in the credits. The, the character is listed as CIA agent. Uh, at least he's listed like that uh, on wiki and IMDB. Um, they could finally, have said uncle. Why would they say uncle? United Network Command for Law Enforcement. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Couldn't resist that. Sorry. Right. Or that incredibly silly acronym they had uh, in Napoleon uh, Solo. Uh, no. Um, you love uh, that one. Flint. Flint. In like Flint. Oh. Well, well Spectre was the one in James Bond, right? And yeah. Um, Thrush was the bad organization in Uncle. And <laughs> actually, Get Smart had the best one, I thought. Chaos. K A O S. Uh, yeah, that yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in that in that first scene at the beginning of the film, our protagonist is going to ask, "Why are the Vopos so close?" Uh, Vopos would be slang for the German Volkspolizei. Uh, probably mispronouncing that. Um, that was an organization that uh, began right after. World War II, uh, these were the police that were sent in to uh, like maintain order in the captured territories uh, from, from Germany, uh, all the way up to and including Eastern Berlin. Um, by this point, uh, they were very much uh, under the control of the Stasi and the KGB. Um, and I got to oh, say, when I started watching that, it was exactly the way I imagined it in the book. I tell you, they put that scene together exactly the way the book was. And that's saying something. So it was actually Checkpoint Charlie in the book? Yeah, that's how it starts. That's so incredible. I've visited there, by the way. Um, that's something, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, really, it's really striking to me. Again, the wall having gone up in just August of 61. He's mm -hmm. writing this in 63, not only for the wall to be so prominent, for, but for Checkpoint Charlie to already have its place of, of prominence uh, is just amazing to me. He, yep. he really is writing like absolute, you know, like you said, ripped from the headlines. Well, and the other um, thing we need, 
we need to keep in mind, or our audience needs uh-huh. to keep in mind, is which authenticates him. He was uh, <laughs> he was in the Secret Service for years, so uh, yes. that authenticates um, so much of his uh, his background and his authenticity. Right, right, right. Um, he uh, it's the success of this book. It's the success of this book that prompts him to leave the service and dedicate his life to writing. Uh, I think he's said to this day, he's still kind of mystified that they let him get away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that they let mm-hmm. him publish this book, uh, but that he has absolutely no idea what he would have done uh, if they hadn't. It completely changed his life. This this book was a huge international bestseller. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, massive. Um just also, you know, talking about the like the authenticity of the of the uh, agencies we've got. I wanted to mention that at one point, uh, George Smiley is referred to as working for a subsection of British intelligence called Satellites Four. That is a fictional name, but probably a fictional name of an actual uh, group. Um, it's uh, described in the film as that's the group that's tasked with. Oh, running, running agents behind the Iron Curtain. Um, also, hey, speaking of the Iron Curtain, uh, just this tiny little thing where the um, the German defense attorney in a tribunal at, near the end of the film, he refers to the Iron Curtain, and it was pointed out to me that uh, nobody, only we called it the Iron Curtain. Uh, Churchill. The other side. Yeah, Churchill coined it, yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't have referred to it that way. Right, because um, it was a pejorative. Yes, you know. Yes, very much. So, so. why would they use that pejorative? Hmm. Um. So yeah. So he's writing about MI six, but he doesn't want to call it MI six. Can you tell us what he what he does call it? The circus. Hmm. Calls it the circus because yeah, you point out that in the book, or they point out that there's a address where the headquarters are that has circus on it or circus street that's or something. Right. That's right. Cambridge circus is one of the, one of the streets that his fictional agency operates out of the actual MI six has never occupied those, uh, those buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, also uh, this character control who's described as the head of MI six in the books. I'm given to believe that like his identity is secret. Like nobody knows who he actually is. Obviously, that's not the case with the actual. Um, yeah, that that was something not right out of Get Smart. You know, that was yeah. something right out of Get Smart. You know, I'm surprised he didn't have the cone of silence <laughs> 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 to go along with that. Yeah, I'll, and so although the book is over overall realistic, it does have some of those little touches of uh, slight, slightly slightly fantastic. Yeah, um, such such as that one. Uh, control is also known as by the letter C and, uh, that is, let's see, wait, let's see, G, 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 R, N, C coming. Yes. Yes. Coming. So that is true to life. The real head of MI6 does sign documents and is known by the letter C just like control in here, um, the first head of MI6 was Captain Sir Mansfield Smith Cumming. He signed with a C and in green ink. Uh, and MI6 directors to this day follow that tradition. 
Uh, and of course that letter C that's where, uh, Fleming gets his idea to, uh, to name his head of MI6 M and then has all the other uh, divisions with their letters like Q and stuff. So Mm -hmm. yeah, all, all part of the, all part of the same party. Tell us anything you want to tell us about John Lake Hooray. You mentioned he was in the service in the fifties and the sixties. Yeah. And, uh, I think I'm willing to guess one of the reasons why he left was he didn't like what he saw. Uh, there's a real cynicism throughout his mm. books about not only the spies who are very fallible characters, but the whole spy business, which he views as a game. Uh, most of them are not motivated by ideology or patriotism, but just regular Joe's. And that's kind of the speech he gives to the librarian at the end, at the very end, which we'll talk more about. Mm -hmm. Um, That the whole thing is a game that very flawed people play. And uh, that, if there's any theme running through his books and movies, it's that. And I think it came through in this movie as well. hundred percent. And he really, he really pioneers that and, and rules and it reigns as King of the landscape um, to this day. Uh, of course we had, you know, this whole long period, long period in, in film and probably mostly in literature where uh, the idea of a spy as a hero never occurred to people. Spies are always shady bad guys um your main character can't be a spy like that would make no sense the audience wouldn't be able to identify with them or so the thinking went and then of course james bond comes along flips that completely on his on its head and yeah. uh launches the spy craze of the 60s but by this point you know by already by 1965 so much of this stuff is coming out that like people really have you know they're scrambling around looking for more material you know, I just imagine studio heads saying, like, get me more spy stories, get me more spy stories, and also get me some that'll stand out, some that'll be different. We can't compete directly with Bond, right? We can't just make our own version of James Bond. We got to come up with our own spin on this. Hence, Uncle. Hence, yes. Uncle was the yes. first. Mm-hmm. Then we had a spoofier one, Get Smart. And then there was a British one called The Avengers. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about that. John Steed and Emma Peel. Uh, I do. And I do want to do the Avengers someday, but here, let me mention this too. I know this about the Avengers. The Avengers actually doesn't start out as a spy TV series. It kind of transforms into one as a result Mm. of, of the, uh, the spy craze of the 60s. Yeah. I, I pick, yeah, I, and use different actors too. The, yeah. What was her name? Diana Rigg doesn't come in till later. Of course, she just passed away, and it was hard for me to see her as an old lady in Game of Thrones uh, because she, and I know people get old, but she was so beautiful uh, in that series and so young. And uh, from what I saw, there was another woman in it, and John Steed, I think, was the guy who played Patrick McNee, I think his name was. He had uh, a bit of a different role. I just saw from some of the scenes compared to the one where he had the, the hat and the cane and, uh, okay. you know, it's got a little, it's finger. got a little, it's got a little blade in the cane, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. But they were, 
that was also a tongue-in-cheek, but it was a British view of it, and that was very good. Then there was one called uh, I Spy with Bill Cosby and Robert Culp. Uh, I think that was on ABC, and that ran for a while. That was pretty popular. But, uh, you know, my favorite of always was Uncle, Uncle, because Uncle, Uncle more than anything, as much as it was campy and went campy, it captured the swing in the 60s more than any other, okay, with the music, with uh, Ilya Kuryakin, who was a a uh, heartthrob with his beetle haircut. I mean, I remember him. Yeah, I remember him, even though he was quite a bit older in the teen magazines, you know, 16 and Tiger Beat, you know. Right, right, uh, right. I first saw him in The Great Escape, um, David McCallum in that huge cast with Charles Bronson and uh, James Garner and so many others. That's where I first saw him in the movies. But now, of course, he plays Ducky in NCIS. And so he he may have had may have the longest career of somebody, a, a star in the 60s who is still going. And, of course, Robert Vaughn was really the man from Uncle. Um it was going to be one man, a la James Bond, and he was kind of the suave, smooth James Bond character. But David McCullen was so popular, audiences wrote in, that they decided to keep those two men from Uncle, and they shared missions and so on. But that was my favorite because, I, like I say, it, it captured the swing in 60s zeitgeist uh, more than anything, I think. Excellent. Um so yeah, uh, Le Carre, as you mentioned, he passed on uh, recently. Um, he kept writing all the way to the end. Uh, in 2019, a book came out uh, that was set in uh, 2018 that incorporated events such as Brexit. Yeah. So staying topical, as you mentioned before, all the way till the end. And uh, there was one more called Silverview, which yeah. right now it. we believe was his last novel. Yep. Uh, that's It's the last one we know of. Mm-hmm. It was published posthumously. Uh, you had some notes in here where, about the wilderness of mirrors that I wanted to ask you to share. Well, uh, is, it, is it because he used the phrase in the book? Because I didn't see it in the movie. No, um, he did not. It's just that I, as you correctly point out, it, was, it wasn't originally a spy phrase, right? But James Jesus Angleton, who was the head of RCIA, used or resurrected it, I guess, to a, to apply to the spy world. And what he was referring to is the, just the secretive nature and the deception of, of double agents uh, and how it's so hard to uncover them, especially after the Philby Cambridge 7 scandal. Um, and I believe he didn't coin the term, but resurrected it into um, the spy world. And, of course, we'll see that. And Lacare writes about that in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, where Smiley's job is to uncover a mole. Right, right, right. I've, I've always thought it's a very beautiful phrase uh, that, yeah. that reflects the Cold War spy game quite perfectly. Uh, this film, for this film, black and white was an artistic rather than an economic choice in 1965. Mm-hmm. Uh, color film was cheap enough that if you wanted to shoot color, you could. You know, you didn't have to. You didn't have to think about it in budgetary terms. So, uh, black and white was a stylistic choice here. Uh, for example, this film shared Oscar nominations for best art direction with films such as uh, The Sound of Music, famously a very colorful 1965 offering. 
Uh, note here about the screenwriter Paul Den, or possibly Paul Dean, it's D-E-H-N, uh, was uh, stationed at Camp X in Ontario, Canada during World War II, where he uh, t- uh, helped to train spies and special forces teams. Uh, John Le Carre said of the screenwriter that uh, he turned out to know even more about espionage than he did. So um, that's that's really great. To further know. Authentic, further authenticating this film, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Lake Ray was generally pleased uh, with the film uh, and was working on it. He said he was just he was just pulled in to put in you know little touches on the script and said actually kind of his main job was uh, uh, keeping keeping tabs on Richard Burton. Uh, famous actor, great actor, also very famous alcoholic, very difficult to keep, uh, his attention focused <laughs> during filming. Yeah. <laughs> Had wanted his wife, Elizabeth Taylor to play the, uh, the librarian. Um, John Lake did say he originally, he actually felt that Richard Burton was, was too glamorous. You know, Richard Burton was a huge name. Uh, at this time and remained right. so for I, a very long time. I'm old enough to have remembered that. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, him I, playing. The thing that sticks out with me too is playing Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Rex uh, Harrison he, played Caesar. Mm, okay. And, and it, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor played Cleopatra. Well, I remember my father Taylor taking me as a little boy in the theater. And I remember him putting his hand over my eyes when they... I think brought a head out of a urn or something. I was just a little boy and he took me to that, but he played Mark Anthony. Mm. So yeah, John uh, Le Carre originally thought Burton was too glamorous uh, to play this part, but uh, was completely uh, won over by Richard Burton's um, unshowy, uh, very dedicated performance. Uh, yeah. which I agree is, is totally one of the stars of this film. Um, last couple notes before the briefing room. Uh, you noticed, you called out uh, the grocer in this movie. The grocer is uh, someone we would recognize from other spy films. Do you remember who that was? M. Yeah. He's, uh, he's the guy that plays M in the James Bond films. Uh, Final bit of business. Does this film pass the park bench check? I pointed out a real irony there, and I think I told you about that. Todd loves park benches. I know Todd loves park benches. And, I mean, believe me, I agree. That's where most (laughs) uh, tradecraft has taken place. That's where drop boxes are. That's where notes are passed. Right? However, and I get into this a little more with the book. There is a park bench in the book, right? Where, what was, what's his name? Nash? No. Is his name Ash, Nash? The Ash, guy? Just Ash. Ash. Just Ash. No N. All right. Ash in the book, who's trying to recruit the first contact he makes of Lemus, who's played by Richard Burton, is at a park bench when, when um, Lemus is, sent out of prison for three months, which is another thing 
the movie avoids, because I think that's integral in developing his individuality and his being ripe for recruitment. All Lemus has is a brown paper parcel of all of his belongings, which is, includes his health ticket and so many other things. And he's so disgusted and alienated that he leaves it on the park bench, which gives Ash the perfect opportunity, because he's tailing him, to say, hey, you forgot this. This is yours. He picks it up and tries to hand it to him. And Lima still says, I don't want it. And right. what's unusual is I thought, gosh, there's Todd's park bench. And they skip it in the movie. Yeah. Not only do they skip that, but the most important thing they skip, I think, as I said, is the three months in prison. Because that, to me, really in terms of the communists approaching him, hardened him for being ripe for the pickings of recruitment. So those are a couple things that I think uh, should not have been. Uh, I mean, and they could have done some prison scenes without making it too long too. And they could have included the park bench too. So I, I, was, I was disappointed in the omission of those two things. Right. Well, I'm still going to give it a pass because we do, I mean, we do have the two guys meet uh, oh, yeah. at a park bench. Um, yeah, but that was the perfect opportunity when he leaves it there, right. walks away, and then Ash says, hey, you forgot this. Oh, yeah. Plus, your favorite, you know, prop. You know, I can't avoid that. Park yeah. benches. And, and as you've mentioned, you know, like a, a close runner-up would be the parking garage is another great yeah. place to have meetings. Yeah, <laughs> cliche, right? From deep throat to everything else. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So I'm going to start with a plot, a summary of the plot here as we see it in the movie. We're going to follow that up with a timeline of events as they happen, because this movie is going to deal with a lot of events that supposedly happened like before the quote unquote beginning of the story. Uh, please jump, jump in anytime uh, with your notes. You don't have to let me just uh, uh, run off with the microphone. Uh, the movie starts out with uh, Lemus. That's Richard Burton's character and our main character returning to London after one of his critical operatives is killed in East Berlin while trying to uh, cross over Checkpoint Charlie. Remick. Once in Remick, yes. Remick. And okay. Remick will, will turn out to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, while he's there, in while he's back in London, he's coached into pretending to have retired angrily from the service and fallen into drunken depravity. This includes uh, committing an assault on the aforementioned grocer that lands him in prison for three months. The aim of all this is uh, for him to, you know, just dangle like bait on a hook to look attractive to enemy agents as, as someone that uh, could be manipulated into uh, giving them uh, intelligence and information or maybe even working for them. Um, This charade is successful. And uh, when, once he starts getting approached by a red team, uh, he pretends to be going along with it, although he does a really good job. Okay, I don't want to get too much into detail, but he does a really good job of, of seeming like he's just in it for the money, which I appreciated. Yeah. Um, 
Once he's in their hands, he divulges details of a complicated banking operation of moving money to uh, some source uh, unknown, even that to Lemus. Re- that would be referred to as Operation Rolling Stone later on. Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, eventually, he's uh, relaying this information to Fiedler, who is the second in command of Eastern German intelligence. And the overall aim of this operation appears to be to discredit Munt, Fiedler's boss, as being actually uh, a British operative uh, all the way up at the top of, uh, you know, what we would consider to be the Stasi here. Um, Fiedler's eager to believe the information and uses it to accuse Munt. A tribunal is assembled at first evidence does seem to support the idea that Munt is a spy. However, spoiler alert, surprise, surprise, a key witness is summoned that uh, has information that totally discredits Lemus. That causes the tribunal to conclude that Fiedler and Lemus were in league all along, and that it's Fiedler that needs to die, not Munt. Oh, spoiler um, alert. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's important to point out, too, that this wilderness of mirrors, Lemus uh-huh. is caught up in. You know, oh, yeah. Lemus is actually caught up in because he's he's with it up to a point until he starts wondering, am I still in on this? Because he thinks <laughs> originally that, yeah, we're doing all this to get Mont. Right? Then mm-hmm. the newspaper article, right? Then the the part of Rolling Stone that he's not quite sure of, right? With Mont. Uh, so we see him throughout this movie start to wonder, is this a part of what I've signed up for that I just don't know about? Or are things starting to turn? And he doesn't quite know till that final climactic scene at the tribunal, and then it's written all over his face. That's right. The overall operation is a double cross, and basically he's the... Uh the crossy <laughs> he's the one that's yep. getting double crossed by his own people. And that was the plan all along and, yep. and not because he's a bad guy, but just because he's useful, uh, in that, um, during, uh, at the end of the film, during an attempted escape from East Berlin, Lemus learns that Munt was in fact a spy. So this whole operation was also uh, designed to give Munt e- even more cover and credibility. Um, he realizes that uh, Control engineered all this from the beginning and that the target was Fiedler all along. Uh, at the end, he dies what? in a... Yeah? I'm just thinking, boy, Control relies a lot on things to happen their way. And it works, right? But they had to rely on things that I think are kind of subtle. You know, first thing with Smiley's contact with the librarian, just the mere contact. He doesn't say, I'm going to pay for your lease, right? Oh, yeah, right. Germans have to put that together, right? He just makes that contact, right? That's right. So this is very subtle stuff. Also, they have to rely on the gaps in Rolling Stone, which Lemus was a part of up to a point, right? 
But Lemus has ignorance of Munt's proximity to those accounts. So there's that, right? Also, Lemus has no idea about Munt's turn by London in 1959 from the other book, A Call for the Dead, where he's turned, allowed to escape, right? And Fiedler brings this up by making him suspect, right? London turns him around, right? Mm -hmm. And that would lead to his participation in Rolling Stone. So there's so many plates in the air, and Lemus is kept in the dark about that as well. So they rely a lot on subtle things to happen, and they did. But that's what's amazing about this whole thing. The whole, And that's why I give that whole plan my number one tradecraft. Okay, okay. Because yeah, was, of... Yeah, they're marionettes. They're marionettes. Not only, I mean, they're not only manipulating the East Germans, but they're manipulating their agent in the field as a patsy, let alone the librarian who happens to be a card-carrying communist, which maybe makes her a little more expendable. Um, But... It's a plan yeah. that does carry it it's a plan that does carry a lot of risk with it because yeah. what if I mean you know basically they're firing a bullet at their own agent mm-hmm. and firing a second bullet to deflect the first bullet along its path. Yeah. Well if the second bullet misses then you've got a problem. Um <laughs> so that's that's a little weak point in there. I do I am the kind of guy I do definitely notice and it bugs the hell out of me when I see people make plans or when they, at the end of the movie, they cackle and say, ha ha ha. I planned this all along. And I'll look back at what the events were. And I'll say, really? Cause there were a lot of total coincidences that you had no control over uh, right. during, during the thing. But, but, and when they're blatant, I'll call them out on it. But I have figured out uh, something to also keep in mind is that I, I think you you have to assume that some of these super smart people, they also have plan B's and plan C's. And -hmm. when you say like, okay, what if, you know, they laid out these breadcrumbs that, you know, possibly could have been missed. Well, maybe there were other breadcrumbs as well that that did get missed, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we we don't, as an audience, we don't care about those. So uh, I always have to try to assume that they had uh, contingency plans. Um, Well, again... The authenticity of La Carre makes me more of a believer, you know, right, because of his right, experience right. in the spy games. You know, maybe what that I'm, was a scenario, even if it wasn't pulled off, maybe that was a scenario at one time that he had a look at, just like in Condor when they yeah, looked at I'm all sure. those scenarios, right? Right, right. Like for instance, like Fleming wasn't a field agent. Uh, you know, he was he was an analyst. Uh, so I mean, but he was privy to the reports of a lot of field right. agents, and exactly. that's where he got his his ideas from. Right. Um, another question that comes up to me now that you mention it too is that, you know, if we if we believe Corey was very disillusioned in the British service, do we think that he thought the head of MI six was this fucking smart? I I was just thinking that. Yep. I mean, yep. I, it's clear that he believes that MI6 is this level of manipulative, but mm-hmm. whether or not they were this competent, I wonder if that's something he actually believed or if he injected into it to make it a more interesting story. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like he's given them more credit than he normally thinks they're worth. Maybe, maybe. Um, but, you know, still, even if he thought they were competent, if he thought they were uh, immoral, that would be enough reason for him to become disillusioned. So let's talk yeah. about the details. Let's talk about the details in the timeline so that we just know what pieces that we're playing with the same set of pieces of, of what actually happened here leading to lead up to this story. Like what did control set in motion? And uh, as you alluded to a moment ago, it all started in 1959 when Munt was uh, uh, masquerading as uh, oh some kind of trading mission in London, but it was actually yeah. he was actually spying uh, in London, and uh, yep. he for some reason something happened. He killed a man, was captured by British intelligence, and was flipped. We don't know how he was flipped, um, but this is all a secret you know, to, to us through a large part of this movie. Um, so what they did is they faked an escape. They facilitated a fake escape of Munt uh, from London. Um, Remick, who's the guy who dies at the beginning of this film, had infiltrated the Iron Curtain. He was back there, but he hadn't gotten access to anything good yet. Part of the plan, part of Munt's mission is to help Remick rise in the ranks so that he can get better information. Eventually, that information is good enough that it's, he starts being able to feed it to his station chief, Lemus. Lemus, of course, knows about Remick, doesn't know about Munt. At some point, Control visits Berlin to meet with Remick. Something that Lemus opposed, but Control is his boss. Uh, Lemus arranged the meeting, but is unaware of what they discussed. Fred I wasn't sure I understood why this was important in the movie. Do you have any um, insight for us? Neither. Lemus, this goes back to Lemus having ownership of his man and him keep saying, I have control. He said, I don't know if that was in the book or in the movie, probably the book is that I don't know why he needed to, I don't know why control needed to see Remick. He's my man, blah, 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 blah. And this could in hindsight for him, especially when he goes out for booze, right? So they are together for a while. Then he goes out for booze. He doesn't go to a store, but he goes somewhere else. So at that time, they could have talked more about Rolling Stone or whatever. But Lemus doesn't like it. He doesn't understand it. But maybe in hindsight, he sees it as part of the plot that he's not involved in okay. when he goes out for booze. Because supposedly... Um, Control wants to thank him for his service up until this point. That's what that's, he tells that's, Lemus. That's the, yeah, that's the stated reason. Um, I mm-hmm. thought it was Control that specifically wanted to have the meeting uh, in privacy from Lemus. But you think Lemus just happened to be thirsty well, and go out? No. Well, I think that was his way of getting the privacy. Oh, okay. By okay. dismissing him. All right. Um. So that all happened in the past. At some point, Remix exposure became too high, and that's why he attempted the crossing that we see at the very beginning of the film in which he gets killed. Uh, now, Remix's death is a subject we could speculate on, at least briefly. Uh, it could just be due to his documents having been faulty, right? We don't have to look at this and, like, uh, just because there's a death doesn't mean there was a murder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um 
So it could have just been shitty luck. However, it also could be that, I mean, Fiedler has a theory. Fiedler thinks that Munt fingered him. Fiedler Uh thinks that uh, it's because Rimmick knew too much and was going to expose Munt somehow or something. So I guess I don't, I, I don't really buy Fiedler's logic on this. Yeah. The one guy in the tribunal asks him, why would he kill him? And Fiedler says that Munt kills Remick supposedly before he could be incriminated by him because Remick was already under suspicion. And Fiedler claims that if given the opportunity to interrogate him, interrogate mm-hmm. Remick, Fiedler could have exposed Munt, but Munt shot him. I think that's a lot for Fiedler to assume. But that was his explanation at the tribunal. Yeah, because for for Munt, it's also it's even a better win if Remick does get across. Yeah, uh, yeah, good enough. Um, now, of course, there's still a problem. Like if Rimmick is under suspicion, then possibly Munt could be under suspicion as well, because as Fiedler points out, Munt has gone to great lengths to advance Rimmick's career. So mm-hmm. I did think of only one way, and it's not something we saw in the movie, but just one way that Fiedler's logic would make sense is if Munt had uh, uh, arranged Fiedler's death and then gone to great lengths to take credit for it, you know, been like, aha. I exposed this guy. I figured out what he was up to. Ha ha. Which he kind of does at the end with facilitating by blaming the escape on Fiedler of you know who at the very end. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. He kind of does pull that with those folks on Fiedler. So, yeah, I wouldn't Um, put it past him on that. Oh, I know mm-hmm. what we, I know what, in the timeline, the stuff that we didn't mention is that, of course, Operation Rolling Stone was happening all this time as well. Mm-hmm. And Operation Rolling Stone was uh, just, it's basically just a way to move money uh, to someone, large amounts of money. To two, to two city, two banks, Copenhagen, and what was the other one? In the Netherlands. Um, but yeah. And um, the way they, so they have this elaborate, um, Fiedler wants, tries to sniff out the um, banker by getting Lemus to sign some question about the banks. Right, right, right. And then they come back and they find out Copenhagen and Helsinki. That's Those were the yes. two cities. Yes, hey, ding, ding. And they find out that, uh, Munt was in the area when the withdrawals took place. Hence, fingering Monk, and which Lemus didn't know about about the agent. They think there's an agent. They're trying to sniff him out. They, in other words, somebody Lemus opened the count for some agent that he didn't know about, and then Fiedler wants to find out who it is, and that's how they sniff out Munt. That Munt was in the area of the two banks and made when the withdrawals took place, which it's fingers a weird. Munt. It's a little weird to me that you could open up a bank account and put someone else's name on it. That isn't present with you at the, at the time mm-hmm. of signing. Um, yeah. but, uh, I've seen that done before in other spy movies. Uh, Fred's see. camera is locked up. I'm going to check in with him real quick. Hey, Fred, how you doing? Good. What's the matter? Oh, your camera your camera froze up. I just wanted to make sure oh. your audio was good. Okay, you hear me? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. I just wanted to check, and I should mark. Let me mark the time so that I uh, pull that out. Uh, I have seen it done in other movies, though. Opening a bank account uh, in uh, your name and someone else's. Uh, yeah. We did that in Red Sparrow. But in that case, I mean, it was her uncle. And she was kind of seducing the banker into uh, helping her out with that. Um, but yeah, just, I don't know. Maybe it was maybe it was different in the 60s. I don't think you could do that today. Um, opening accounts, Rolling Stone, opening accounts to foreign banks, Copenhagen and Helsinki. Um, big money opened accounts under false names. Control chose cover name Rolling Stone. Explains tradecraft. Lemus crosses Danish border on his own passport. Lemus collects cash from innocent bank. Lemus goes to second bank with a false passport under the name of Woolrich. Lemus opens joint account, same as a married couple does, in two false names. One was my own alias, Woolrich, the other alias of my partner, the agent who would later collect the money. What was the agent's alias? And I have down here, Verdon Zeibolt. Okay. Got a, he got a, that's right. He got a specimen of the signature from Special Dispatch. So I think that's probably from the book I got. The joint account was open. Only two people could draw on it within a week. Or the mysterious Mr. Zybalt went to the bank and withdrew his money. I never knew when or why. So that's what I have from the book. A little more complicated. Right. And and uh, Zybolt could have been Munt or could not have been Munt. They could, like Munt could have been ignorant of uh, this these interactions. They could have just said like, okay, months uh, months in Helsinki on this day. Quick, go make a withdrawal so that we'll know that uh, the withdrawal was made. You know, at that at that time. Okay. Um, yeah. By that guy with that with that signature, I still feel like there might be a little bit of missing connective tissue there in in how they accomplished that like and how the banks like don't have sufficient information to to be able to tell Fiedler like exactly who took out the money um mm -hmm. but uh i also kind of noticed there's i felt like there's a little possible side benefit in the rolling stone story is that it kind of sounds like lemus is being given like pretty pretty dumb grunt work to do you know that that he's not uh, being trusted to know everything that's going on. And that would feed into the story of him becoming disillusioned with the service. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's why there's that part of the story, including the newspaper that he's thrown off balance and it's not clear by us or him how much he's in on it. Right, like right. with the newspaper. Can I, can I, can I have yeah, you, go ahead. Can I have you wait a little bit for that for the next section? Because sure. uh, I want to. I want to get to that in the order. I want to talk about how he get, gets passed up the chain. Uh, before I do that, I want to finish up on the. Um, well, no, actually, I could. I could bring this up later. So let's 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 do that. Uh, so so now we're. This is this is the whole operation of making Lemus look like bait and. Uh, mm what I call him getting passed up the chain of different, uh, Eastern Europe, Eastern German intelligence agents. Um, 
for one thing, uh, Burton, uh, uh, you know, of course, famous alcoholic in real life, uh, also plays a really good drunk on screen. Uh, he's doing the bait thing very perfectly, plus spy points for that. What I think is my favorite thing about this movie from a tradecraft perspective, I've never seen this before and anything else I've done is that is these, all these four steps of agents of getting uh, meeting first Ash, the, the conversation just out of prison, outside of prison at the park bench. Uh, and once he's got, uh, has teased Lemus with some of that information, uh, Lemus's reaction is good enough to pass him up to Ash's boss, Carlton and Carl Carlton gives him some more information on, on what the job would entail. Do you want to fill us in a little bit about this? Like, like the, the, the pitch they give to him, like the way they approach him. Yeah. It's, it starts out from Ash is a, like a newspaper writing newspaper articles. Then I'm not sure where it turns into. It almost seemed like when they were further East, that it really got in, it was just known that, or maybe it was just understood by all parties that we're really not talking about newspaper articles here, or you writing, right? right? But that was the the pitch at yeah. first. So I've, I've I've got I've got this one. Ash Ash is just part of supposedly an organization that just likes to help ex cons, you know, get back on their feet. Here's a little money. Can I take you out to lunch? We'll help you try to find a job, and the job turns out to be that's Carlton tells him like yeah we just have friends in in industry that uh you know they just they just want to hear interesting tidbits you know of of stuff that you might have uh, observed or known about in germany at this point they're not saying like hey we know that you were a spy uh we're just we're just dangling this thing and it's like and it's even like someone's gonna ghostwrite it for you so your name's not even gonna be on it it's just money for information what could be simpler what could be easier nothing about it sounds on its face like treasonous but of course mm -hmm. lemus knows what what this really is and so once he signs up for that then he's going to go further up the chain and meet peters and that's where i forget what country they meet in but uh it's outside of london for sure well well who's they go to a still don't they go to a bar in in london first that was uh, that's Carlton. Okay. Yeah. Then after, and are they still talking newspaper articles there? That's where they're still talking newspaper okay. articles. Okay. Then he takes All a right. trip with Carlton to meet Peters at a farmhouse in Helsinki, in, I, I think. Okay. I think it's yeah, Helsinki. Def definitely outside of yeah. London. Um, yeah. And it's with Peters. And especially now that they're outside of London, that they are able to drop the pretense and and talk to each other like actually like spy to spy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I like. I like when that happens in a movie. And eventually, of course, Peters is going to pass him up to Fiedler in Berlin. The reason I wanted to flag all of this is because I've never seen a movie up until now where they actually showed this careful chain, this little fish, to get to a slightly bigger fish to get to a slightly bigger fish. And I appreciated mm -hmm. the patience that the movie shows in that most movies I see, it'll just be one guy. He makes contact. Boom. You're flipped. Ha ha ha. We got you. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but uh, that's where I want to pause and and get you get us back to uh, Peters in the farmhouse who receives a newspaper, uh, a London newspaper by special courier. Over to you, Fred. This is the part that I think that's interesting because it Lemus is definitely off balance, right? With this, but with this, what is it? What is it? Right. Is this part what's of my the, plan that I'm in on, right? With what's London? The, what's in the right? newspaper, Fred? Oh. What's in the newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> that that they're after him, that he's a fugitive, that they want Lemus, that he's oh, no. on the run. Okay. So, but my the interesting part is is this the first sign to Lemus that London in pulling the strings of the plot is pulling the strings of a plot over and above their defection plot that he's in on, right? That he views as tradecraft, that is just part of their original plan, right? To implicate Munt, right? Mm -hmm. That he wasn't aware of. Or is it possible foreshadowing of London's duplicity of him? He doesn't know, right? He could just simply say, okay, even though they didn't tell me they were going to do this, this is pretty cool. It's getting me, it's authenticating my situation, getting me to move further east, right? But in hindsight, for us and him, it could be more of their duplicity uh, manipulating him that he's not aware of. That's right. Now, in this case, uh, his, his open reaction is to accuse Peters is to say, hey, this is this was you guys. This is bullshit. Mm-hmm. You guys uh, have done this to basically burn my bridge behind me, and it sucks, and this is mm-hmm. bullshit. I want my money. Let me out of here. He plays that very well. So mm-hmm. um, regardless of the fact that this is uh, uh, knocking him off balance, he doesn't show that in Peter's face, or at least he turns his anger at mm-hmm. this betrayal toward Peters in a way that makes sense to Peters. It still maintains cover. Right. Whether but, he's off balance or not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But as I always say, sometimes when we can't quite deduce the motivations or exactly what people knew. So, you know, like you said, there's a question. Did, did Lemus think that, did Lemus know this was going to be part of the plan? Did he not? Well, I think it's really clear that he did not because in cases like this, Watch what someone does when they're alone, when there's no one to play act for and just Mm -hmm. what's their personal reaction in privacy. And he is quietly flipping the fuck out as he stares out at the ocean. Yes, he's absolutely rattled. The movie makes a huge point of of showing this to us again through the uh, very fine acting of, of Richard Burton. I think it was his best scene in the film. Honestly, but he could always, if you know, as he thinks it through, he could still come to the conclusion that okay, I didn't need to know this, but I'm still on it, in on it. It makes sense. It's pretty genius, right? He could still comfort himself in that um, it's just a part of the plan that I'm still in on, <laughs> even right. though he's not, or probably. But it's not. also true at this point; he's got no choice. Well, I mean, yeah, he's, yeah. I guess he does have a choice. He could, he could go back to London and. You know, give himself over to the police and wait for C to bail him out <laughs> and yeah. try that. 
but uh, no, he's not going to do that because he's a, he's a professional agent. And so even though I think, I think you're right. I think he's like, okay, I do need to keep going forward. This is a kind of a bitch move that uh, my bosses pulled on me, but I think I know why they did it, even though I don't like it. And now I'm a mm-hmm. lot more nervous and scared about this whole situation it's still the indication is the only way to go is, is forward. Uh, like a shark. No going, yeah. No going back from here. Uh, my mm-hmm. bridge is burned. Yep. Um, um, Fiedler of course. And then, you know, we have these scenes where, where he gets passed to Fiedler. Fiedler gets all the final details of, of operation Rolling Stone. Good time for me to mention that, um, you know, Lemus was, I don't know for how long, but he was the Berlin station chief for British intelligence. They know that. And I think they know that, right? They do know that. Of yeah. course they know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tells them, you know, he tells them and all this time while well, he's trying to like uh, quote unquote, throw them off the scent of Rolling Stone. Like, cause that's all they're in. All Fiedler is interested in is this banking stuff. Mm-hmm. And Lemus keeps trying to throw him off the scent and say, like, you're paying attention to the wrong thing. This is, this is bullshit. Trust me. I know all the agents, right? Mm-hmm. There weren't any agents that I didn't know about. So you're barking up the wrong tree. Two weird things about this. One is good. Like he's doing kind of a good job of saying like, no, 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 stop looking at this. Stop looking at this. And, and of course <laughs> to, <laughs> to them, that's Pay like, no attention ah. to the man behind those curtains. Right, which makes them pay even more attention to uh, the man behind. Or the as uh, William Shakespeare said, "The lady doth protest too much." All right, but it, yes, but it also kind of bugged me that Fiedler was. I mean, I think it's just movie stuff and not necessarily a problem with the story. But I do keep wondering, and especially since Lemus keeps underlining, like, like, okay, like they should be getting the names of all these other agents that he knows about. Like he knows a lot more other stuff than just Rolling Stone, right? Very valuable um, stuff. Yeah. And they show, they but, show no, in, they show no interest in any of that. They're laser focused, or at least Fiedler is laser focused on this one thing. See, I, now, let's see. Uh-huh. I just feel, let's see. I wrote that down somewhere. They put, I think they see it as Rolling Stone is integral to the whole thing. And who, who, when you say they, who do you mean? The they? East Germans. Okay. The East Germans. Fied- and, Let's uh, say Fiedler at least. Fiedler yeah, at least. Fiedler. Right. Um, so I think the fact that they think or they see that Lemus wasn't all in on Rolling Stone in their gaps of his knowledge. Why should they ask him or trust him about any other agent? They put so much on that, and you could I think you you know, I think you're saying too much, but but I think Rolling Stone is integral integral to not only placing Munt, but finding out how much Lemus knew. When they find out Lemus didn't really know about Munt, why should they Trust him or question him about any other agent. That's the only. Th- that's the only thing I would say about your thesis. I'd like to have seen him. You know, if if there was time, if there's another five minutes, you could squeeze into this movie. You know, um, test him. That's that's a tried and true practice. Like, just get mm-hmm. a piece of information that is falsifiable, 
something they can go out and find out is this is this true or not um you know and some something important as fiedler says like or actually fiedler does kind of say you know like all this stuff you've written so far it's just all bullshit this is this is nothing useful uh you're feeding me um chicken chicken feed chicken feed okay. have you heard that term that's yeah. that's a term that do you know here's that something one, i found here's something i found that uh okay. that's revealing about the importance of rolling stone control i wrote this down control tells lemus how fiedler's fiedler month second in command is the linchpin of our plan the only man, a match for Munt. Fiedler is the acolyte, I'm quoting here, that will stub, mm. that will stab the priest in the back, and Rolling Stone will provide him with the dagger point. That's pretty strong stuff. And that shows you how much not only Fiedler, but control put on Rolling Stone. Right. Fiedler's At the same hungry. time they're they're keeping him in the dark about some of it. So so Fiedler's hungry for this. Like he's 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 already got reason to suspect Munt. This isn't this isn't right. like his first uh, excuse to start thinking about the idea that Munt isn't a traitor. I just wish that had been established better in the story. It's kind of why mm -hmm. I put I think the the laser focus on Rolling Stone I listed as one of my worst tradecrafts. Now I'm having some slight second thoughts because we do we do slightly support it with the fact that we know Fiedler is hungry for Munt's blood. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, Fiedler's a Jew and Munt is an ex-Nazi. So they've got it's that amazing how, between yeah, them as well. Yeah, it's amazing in, in the books, too. It's amazing how anti-Semitism is just a given back then. Uh, it's just very casually. They say things like, well, you know, he's a Jew, too, you know? I mean, right. and it's just, it's never questioned. It's never... Uh, nobody ever argues about it. It was just like, that's the way it is, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, at least the movie, the movie itself, I mean, the characters, uh, you know, have some, uh, light, at least light to moderate anti-Semitism baked into them. Uh, at least the movie isn't participating. Uh, you know, they don't, uh, they don't caricature Fiedler or give him any like, you know, trademark nefarious Jew <laughs> kind of uh, mm -hmm. mannerisms or motives. Uh, so at least, mm -hmm. at least the film is free of that. Yeah. Um, and what else do I got about, you know, just going up the chain, getting all this set up, uh, you know, and again, so the point of the operation has pretty much been accomplished here. If this information is all being given to Munt, or no, to Fiedler, then again, like you say, he's he's now got the dagger with which he can assassinate his uh, the boss that he believes is a traitor to the regime. Um, I also just wanted to give plus five points along the way for the fact that Lemus does not hide his disdain for communism a single bit all along the way. I thought that was a really nice bit of uh of helping him to maintain his credibility uh do you know that do you know the acronym mice the four mm -hmm. the four this this is uh there's four reasons there's four there's four reasons someone uh betrays their country there's money ideology ideology compromise and ego mm. and in this case 
what they're what they're doing. Uh, Lemus is uh, pretending that it's a matter of money and ego, but compromise not- would be a honeypot, right? Like or 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 somebody's homosexuality, which was a yep, you know, yep, right. So that would yep. be Get gambling debts, right? A mistress, um, yeah. And um, but I like the way he's so definitely so you know like a a a a less clever piece of bait. You would try to like say like yeah, I'm in it for the money. Also, I love communism. Also, yeah. I have a mistress. I have huge gambling debts and a mistress. And also, yeah. I hate my bosses. Um, but he's right. not doing that. He's just he's just focusing on two of the four. And I just appreciate the fact that he's so scornful of communism right to their faces. Uh, just gives him that extra layer of credibility that I appreciate. Well, his speech to the gal in the end, basically, I mean, he's mm-hmm. cynical about yes. everything. Communism yeah. and also the, the boys back home in the circus and he gives that speech on spies per se, how, you know, uh, fallible they was, are. Although I got to say, I was a little surprised that he showed this disdain for communism when uh, his, his girlfriend, Nan, first brings up the fact that she's uh, a member of the Communist Party. Because if, he, if he's out there looking to make contacts with the communists, it seems like he could have seemed like a little bit more amenable to mm-hmm. it. But... Um, but also, it's clear at every step of the way, he doesn't want her involved in any way, in any right. uh, fashion, which turns out to be pretty uh, prescient on his part. Um, um, you mentioned yeah. chain of command. There was another chain of communication that I thought was interesting, too. Um, and Feeler relates in the courtroom the remake Lemus control chain of communication that Lemus never knew the full extent of because a- each link of the chain – and this is tradecraft, right, was mm. located as far apart as possible. Um, Remick makes this point in his speech. In what we now refer to as compartmentalization, right, or need-to-know cells. Mm-hmm. So this also underlines the time when Control wanted to meet with Remick to supposedly thank him for his service while Lemus went out for more booze. So um, maybe that... Maybe that uh, remake link, Lemus control chain of communications. Control could just come back and say, hey, old sport, that was just a need to know. You didn't need to know that, you know, kind of a thing, which was spycraft back then. And like I say, we they didn't call it compartmentalization like we do now. I'm sure it still is today, Fred. <laughs> right. But that was also a, a chain of communication, remake, Lemus control. I'm so glad you brought up chain of communication because uh, it reminded me there's one other thing I wanted to talk about, about uh, Lemus's travel up the chain uh, from Ash to Carlton to Peters to Fiedler that also kind of is a good segue for my thing about the the mice thing that the, you know, the fact that ego is a big reason that Lemus is, is willing to entertain the idea of betraying his country. Um, and and it fits in too with your compartmentalization thing. Something I noticed was that Carlton is very rude to Ash in their in in the meeting where Lemus is uh, being passed from Ash to Carlton. And yeah, when when Carl- they make fun of his homosexuality both times, so does Lemus. Both of them make cracks about his homosexuality 
Um, okay. Subtle and not so subtle. But anyway, continue. Yep. Okay. Um, but, but you remember in the restaurant, he's really rude uh, to yep. Ash. Carlton, when Carlton brings Lemus to Peter's in uh, Helsinki, we believe, it's clear that Peter's thought he was staying because he's got his suitcase with him. And he seems kind of, you know, like miffed at the way Peters tells him, like, no, you can go take take the car back. And he seems like disappointed. And then Fiedler also plays this weird power play on Peters when, uh, you know, he puts out his hand or uh, Peters puts out the documents and Fiedler's standing like two feet away, right? He could just take a step forward and take him from his hand. But instead he like, like looks at him like, no, like you need to stand yeah. up and fucking put the papers yeah. in my fucking hand, right? You work for yeah. me. Yeah. And then that like, and then be gone with you. Right. So every step of the way, these guys are very rude to their uh, uh, subordinates. Here's why that bugs me and makes one of my worst tradecraft of this film is because these people, especially Fiedler and Peters, I don't know about Carlton and Ash, but these people are supposed to know, like, if they think ego is a reason that could cause Lemus to betray his country, right? Because he feels like his superiors have treated him badly, uh, you know, and weren't respectful of him or appreciative of the work he did then they obviously should understand that when you treat your own agents like that, you're opening them up to the same thing. What I'm saying is like as spies, they clearly understand one side of the equation. You got to understand the other side of the equation as well. So many times people don't, they just see it through their own eyes. Mm, But yeah, I I hear you. Yep. Uh, So now, um, at the tribunal, do you want to, uh, I, we've kind of covered it all, but now that Fiedler's got all his information and all his ducks in a row, do we want to review like his, his overall case against Munt or, or just give it in, in a few sentences? I mean, oh, I why think, don't you go ahead. I think, you know, you, why don't you, you take have, a stab okay. at it? All right. Well, I'm going to be reading from your notes here. All right. Um, Cause you wrote well on this. Uh, Fiedler thinks the double agent is Munt because of these things. The money was withdrawn from the accounts uh, on the days when Munt was present in those cities. Um, the fact that uh, Fiedler points out that Munt was posted to London in 1959 undercover and killed a guy there and managed to escape seems a little too easy. I kind of agree with that. And he, Fiedler does turn out to be right on that score. Um, right. Fiedler thinks that was too easy. Uh so Fiedler claims, and he's right, he's right, he's got this correct, that Munt was uh, flipped by the British and released on the condition that he would be an agent for the British. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's the first part of the tribunal scene. And by this point in the movie, I was just kind of enjoying it. I was kind of feeling a little bit like... I was, you know, admiring the scenery along the way, but nothing about the story seemed like really gripping to me. And then, mm-hmm. dun dun dun, the defense speaks, and they've got a special yeah. key witness. Why don't you take over for us on this part? Well, uh, Munt's lawyer, the crux, the crux his, of the film. Yeah, Munt's lawyer comes in and establishes their surprise witness who was the librarian and he 
she's not Miriam the librarian. Um, her very, she gets lured from London, supposedly by her Communist Party in London, to come to some cultural exchange in East Germany with fellow communists. And remember, being a communist wasn't as big of a stigma back then, as we said before. Some people didn't like it. Some people didn't mind. Right. Right. And they just fought a war, especially Europe, over fascism. So there was a question about which way are we going to go here. Uh, so she goes over there, and she's confused. She knows she wants to help Lemus, but she doesn't know what the charges are, so she doesn't know what to say. She wants to be able to say the right thing to help Lemus. And she starts asking that woman who's in charge of the tribunal, what is the whole, what's going on here? And she said, you don't need to know anything more than what we ask you. Just answer the questions. So this gets us to Smiley's just approach, Smiley's visit to her doorstep, right? Just his pre visit pre is all they need. Previously in the movie. Right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Right? Because they... The lawyer says, your lease has been paid. Who do you think did it? Lemus couldn't have done it because he was in debt, right? Did you have friends who could have done it? Did you know? Did you get, you know? No, no, no. And then he says, does did anybody come and visit you? No, no, no. And then they establish, and she has to admit that Smiley did. So just Smiley's mere presence at her door establishes the circumstantial evidence that if anybody paid off her lease, it was Smiley. Hence, they, control. Because, and it's important. It's important to remember that they made a big show of making sure when Lemus was on the stand, making him state repeatedly he did not know a man named George Smiley, had never met a man named yeah. George Smiley, that, that was, there was no involvement of Nan, that none of this was was connected. Uh, and he didn't and go to Smiley's doorstep when he, he said he was too drunk because they obviously they were following him, right, when he got drunk. And remember at one point they go to Smiley's residence where control is? And he and doesn't I, deny that, but he says, I just was too drunk to know where I was. But they know he did actually, go there too. Did you notice this too? Um, at the time, I was kind of like, what's going on when he took a taxi? Because he's supposed to be totally flat broke. And they've talked a lot about bus trips, right? Like, uh, you know, how far uh, away is work? It's like, okay, five five minutes by bus. The moment he gets like five pounds from, from Ash, he's splurging on taxi rides. And not only that, he takes a taxi to go to a place to take a bus, to go to a place to take a taxi to go and visit George Smiley in control. And they really did not underline it or call very much attention to it at the time. Except I was kind of wondering, like, why are you spending money on taxis here? You're supposed to be broke, you know. That five pounds could buy you, you know, a nice bottle maybe. Yeah, but um, drunks aren't rational, right? Yeah, I don't know. But he wasn't, he wasn't drunk. He wasn't drunk at that moment. He's claiming he was. He's right. claiming 
was exactly that he exactly. was too drunk to remember like because uh, but they followed him in london they saw all this they saw that he took this elaborate route and then he visited george smiley's house so they know that too but you know he's denied that they ask him several times about that trip about that uh trip why did you go to that house why did you go to that house he's like dude i fucking drink so much i don't know where i am half the time uh, so they've really got him on record, and that's what makes Nan's testimony so yeah. damning. It, you know what it reminded me of is the uh, the Bible story: the cock crowed three times when when Peter denied knowing Jesus. <laughs> the cock crowed three times, uh, which was in the prophecy. Um, it just reminded me of that when he kept denying, not only knowing Smiley, right, a uh-huh. few times. I think maybe he said, "I know of him." But then also denying going to his doorstep, or, or I was too drunk to know. Uh, it's just like it reminded me of that the cock crowing three times in the Bible, you know, that all that denial. And they're establishing his lies, and they're establishing Smiley's contact with her. And they, like I say, they didn't even have to say um, Smiley paid for paid off your lease, or they didn't have to have her say that. It was just so such circumstantial evidence that was enough to um, put Munt in the clear and expose the whole plot. And as I say, it was written you know, all over Lemus's face, Richard Burton's face, when he starts to realize the full extent of the plot, all his his eyes, his facial movements, um, and the camera lingering on him was something a book can't do. You know, we talk about what movies can't do, but that's something a book can't do is, uh, for a really good actor to say so much with their eyes. Once it hits him, the full extent of the plot that he was duped in was some pretty powerful stuff in that courtroom. But yeah, all they had to do was establish his denials and Smiley's presence at her door- doorstep, and that was the circumstantial evidence. Right, uh, as 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 you said, and you know, basically, you were taking the words right out of my mouth while we were both working on notes for this. Uh, I was sent. Lemus was sent to discredit Munt. Nan was sent to discredit Lemus. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's pretty brilliant. That is the. That is the crux and mostly the extent of the tradecraft in the film. Um, I did have a couple notes uh, uh, to speak about uh, about the the very end of the movie. Um, uh, just just from a just from a film appreciation point of view, uh, I like the fact that Lima says, "And God help us both." Um, after he explains to her what has all happened when he has made such a huge point of not believing in God throughout like all the movie. Don't you think that's a little, little intentional? I do. Mm. I, yeah. I also think yeah. it's not accidental that there was a reference to lycanthropy very early in the film when he began his job uh, at the library and she explains to him that uh, uh, lycanthropy is the uh, the condition of a man who's been changed into a wolf. And I think that is also uh, the director kind of trying to underline his his point about, uh, you know, the 
is something I, I can't exactly explain it, but there's something there. I don't think it was accidental about the idea that a man can be changed into like, like, I guess the idea of a wolf would be like a hungry, uh, lean, vicious creature, you know, out in the woods, out in the wilderness, the wilderness of mirrors in this case, uh, out in the cold. Yeah. 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 And out in the cold for sure. For sure. Um, and then of course they, they die at the end. There's a, a neat part here to me about, okay. We think it sucks that they killed Nan. Right. So, uh, also we could open up the question of whose decision that was. I think it's Munt's decision. Um, but it, it literally could be anyone and and I'll tell you why, and this is why it made one of my best tradecraft, is that the way they kill her is they uh, their months agent is ostensibly helping them escape. He's taking them to a place in the wall where he's made some maybe some payoffs for some guards to like look away for like five minutes, and like there will be a certain signal, and then like now it's time for you to cross. Now it's safe to cross. And then as they're crossing, as they're at the top of the wall, Munt's agent kills Nan with a rifle, which sucks, obviously. But the reason it's plus five points is because no one will be able to prove that that wasn't a rifle shot from just any random Eastern German um, uh, rifleman sentry. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, it, it could have been on Munt's orders. It could have been on controls orders. You'll never know, you know? And so whoever made the decision to kill Nan is definitely get even. Okay. Now Lemus dies because he doesn't finish his crossing. He makes a suicidal attempt to rescue Nan. And the sentry but tells he- him, don't, no matter what happens, don't go back. Right. Remember? Don't um, reach. Yeah. But, but even if Lemus had escaped, you know, like he wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to pin the blame of Nan's death on either control or Munt or anyone, you know, it's a, it's a perfect crime. It's a perfect crime. Mm -hmm. Um, you, uh, we're, we're just in a final, final phase here. Uh, wrap, wrap it up. Tell us anything that you think uh, we haven't gotten a chance Um, to. You you had a section about differences between the book and the movie. You've talked about some of them so far. Did you have any others you wanted to to address? I liked the uh, just the idea of uh, Lacar's main themes right? About how they're extremely flawed people with no real interest in ideology or patriotism Uh, and we see that within their own agencies as well, not just against the uh, communists. Um, even Lacar's main character, who I really like, George Smiley, um, who's probably, who is his most honorable and benevolent character, is not above playing the game at its deadliest, as we see him on the other side of the wall beckoning Lemus to come over after the girl is killed. Um, so, um, and then I we see that he looks at them all as a bunch of self-serving people. And I couldn't help but think, and I've said this to you before, they've proven that in real life with the Cambridge five and Philby, right? How the rot just went all the way up to the top of British intelligence 
and was allowed to escape, right, into Russia, that even Le Carre couldn't dream up a plot like that. So I can't help but think that the Cambridge Five, including Philby, Let me ask wasn't you a, a big part of Let me ask you Le Carre's a- cynicism. Go ahead. Uh, so when when was the Philby affair? It was prior to this. Yeah, if like he's from this the fifties to the early sixties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And they gave they they gave information to the Russians from World War Two right on up to um, the Cold War through the Cold War, and then they were two of them escaped, uh, McLean and Burgess, and then Philby followed. Philby being the third man. And for the life of me, I can't believe why there hasn't been a movie based on that. It's just, I mean, if, if, a, if, if an author, a fictional author came up with that, it's like, no, we're not going to do that. It's too unbelievable, you know, but it happened. Yeah. You know? you've meant, you've meant, we've, we've, we've talked about this. Uh, one of the ideas you floated once was you thought that it would just be because uh, the story of Philby would be just too embarrassing. Um, well, it, that was the reason why they think he was allowed to escape so easily because the courtroom trial would be so embarrassing. Um, and I just made a jump thinking maybe that at least, I mean, Hollywood, of course, I think you said would have no trouble with it, but I could see why the Brits might not want to mess with it. Cause it is embarrassing. That's right. We have covered uh, on the podcast. We, d- we have two episodes that do feature the character, Kim Philby. They don't focus on him. Uh, one of them was one of our very early episodes uh, from the miniseries, the company uh, in which um, I forget. Oh no, it's uh, I think it's Tom. It might be Tom Holland that plays Kim Philby in that one. Um, and also in uh uh, the Matt Damon movie, the not the Constant Gardener, it was the Good Shepherd, mm. uh, which renames everyone, but it has a, a, a definitely a Kim Philby character that's played by Billy Crudup. Uh, so if people were looking for more Philby stuff, I could recommend those those uh, offerings and also our podcast episodes on them. Um, you had in your notes here too that Ben McIntyre's A Spy Among Friends is considered mm-hmm. the best book on Philby. And yep. uh, of course uh, he's got an autobiography called My Silent War. Mm-hmm. Um, that he wrote, I think in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's tried to sell it. <laughs> yeah. To, 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 uh, to blows my mind. The, the whole story, it just blows my mind. I mean, talk about the ultimate cluster. You know what? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that it was allowed. It was we allowed. And I think, I think, I know, I know, I think it to. goes, <laughs> yeah, it has to go. A lot of it has to go to, uh, Lacare's cynicism about the whole bunch, you know, that, okay. If the old boy network was, you know, selfish and out for themselves, I mean, <laughs> well, look what they, look what the old boy network actually did. Not not only did they enable a lot of this stuff, the old boy network conspired <laughs> to be spies. You know, it's just, it's beyond uh, imagination. It really is to me. 
Agents please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. Fred, do you think you could give this a, a star rating of zero of one to five and tell us why you 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 pick the rating that you do? I I give it a four because as I said before, it wasn't as good as the book. I thought it let too many important things out of the book. Like I said, his time in prison was I think important to his character making him the almost, well, the approachable character he would be to recruitment after coming out of prison like that. And, uh, but other than that, you know, I thought it was very good. And as you said, for the time, it was topical, well acted. Uh, so I'd give it a four. All right. I say, um, as they um, used to say in the Dick Clark show, you can dance to it. And it's got a good beat. Give it a four. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a bit harsher uh, uh, myself. Um, you know, as far as a watch once, it's, it's fine. It's great. Uh, generally, like my, kind of my benchmark on a three is like on a Sunday afternoon, if I'm flipping through channels uh, at my parents' house because they don't have internet TV, they just have regular old, old timey TV. And now it's like 8 billion channels. Uh, you know, if I'm flipping through, do I, if it's a three, it's something like, okay, I'll settle for this. I'm my search is over. Uh, I don't think my search is quite over, uh, with this one. It dips right down into 2.5 and I'll just, and it, it also could be kind of a generational thing. Although I do like old movies. I really do. But this one just, except for Richard Burton's performance, which I thought was really good. It's got a couple of things that really stuck in my craw, and I wanted to point these out. The relationship between Nan and Lemus, I thought, was completely contrived, totally unearned, uh, really stuck in my in my craw. Like I did not, I did not understand them as an item <laughs> at all. Uh, you know, like they had one dinner where they didn't even kiss. And then we, next thing we know, she's greeting him uh, with a big hug as he gets out of prison. Where did this come from? Mm-hmm. And there's another thing that uh, some older movies do that, that really bugs me is when there'll be scenes. I'm going to call out this one particularly. This one comes early in the film. This is Lemus's ride back to London with the guy in the car. You remember that little conversation they have? And Lemus is kind of picking his brain about like what's what's going on and it's one of these scenes that typifies some films of the era where like the the second the dialogue is over we're out of the scene when like a more modern film like in the 70s like you you would know to like let that scene linger give us another five seconds of just quietly riding in the car that kind to of digest stuff it yeah, that you see in modern films. There's so much in this film that I thought was just like, okay, we just need to do our steps that's, and then, and then that's get off editing. the stage immediately. Yeah, that's where editing yeah. comes in. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And wasn't think, the you know, I would say wasn't the ending enough though for you? Wasn't what did, wouldn't you say it was a great ending? I, I do give the thumbs tribunal. up for that. I do give thumbs up for the ending. Uh, I noted, I particularly noted that a lot of the critics of the time. 
didn't like the ending. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is a great ending. It's probably perfect. because they were fooled and they didn't like the fact that they didn't see it coming. <laughs> well, they thought the movie was too bleak overall. A lot of critics. It's supposed Audience. to be. That's why it was shot in black and white. Yeah, right. To get that, they get that Iron Curtain over the Iron Curtain feel about it. I mean, that's, and I told you, that opening scene at Checkpoint Charlie is exactly how I read it in the book, too. Which, is, which made me wonder why that they deleted some of the scenes that I wish they didn't. Because it was enough like the book that I thought it was very good. I also want to agree with you on that. There, This film isn't very long. And I think a movie that is like maybe 20 minutes longer than this, that has a little bit more of the relationship between Nan and uh, Lemus, that has the prison scenes that you're talking about, and that maybe establishes Fiedler's mistrust of Munt a little better. Like, I think there's a better film here and maybe some of it was yeah. there and just was left on the cutting floor, cutting room floor, but mm -hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't particularly long. And I think, I think more would have been better to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they could have, cause like I say, they did show signs of following the book quite well. Now I'm going to go to uh worst tradecraft in the film. I'll start with this one. Uh, my number three is Fiedler's theory that Munt betrayed Remick. And I noticed that was the same that uh, as you gave uh, your number two worst tradecraft for that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to put some color on it for us? Um, I just said, I think it's a lot for Fiedler to assume. He feels that if he just got, could have gotten his claws in him, right, to interrogate Rimmick, that he could have exposed Munt. But Munt shot yeah. him. So I just thought that was a lot for for. I think it's uh, a lot for him to it's it's a lot for him to assume. Of course, maybe he's just putting like a little extra log on the fire, you know, in yeah. building his case. To maybe make he his doesn't case. actually right. Maybe he doesn't actually believe that was the case. But still, right. my worst number three. My worst number two is the fact which we talked about. The fact that Fiedler seems to have zero interest in anything that Lemus might be able to provide, ex in anything except the Operation Rolling Stone. I understand that's the movie's laser focus, but. Again, that's kind of why I ding it on star rating is because like the movie just seems to want to just hit its beats and move on. And there's some extra stuff that I thought should have been in there. My number one, again, is the disdain for underlings that is displayed by uh, from Carlton to Ash, from Peters to Carlton to from Fiedler to Peters. These men, obviously, on one hand, they understand how uh, people could betray their country on the basis of ego and feeling disrespected by their bosses, they understand that when they're looking at Lemus and when they're looking at their own underlings, they don't seem to have any clue about that at all. What did you think? We already nailed your number two as matching my number three. What was your number three worst? Lemus keeps saying that as head of Berlin station, he would have known if Munt was their agent, which falls on deaf ears with Fiedler and the other interrogators. As Shakespeare said, the lady doth protest too much. He keeps saying, I would have known, I would have known. I was head of Berlin Station. I would have known all the agents. And uh, after a while, it just, you know, as they say, fell on deaf ears. Yeah, I, I agree. He might be overplaying that a, li a little bit. What about your worst? My worst, my Fred's worst was, uh, 
I didn't like killing the librarian. I think, although I know what you're saying, it tied up the loose ends. Yeah, yeah because in the perverted spy world, games that are played, they think it was per- prudent to kill her because she was the proverbial loose end. Um, about Mont and the whole plot to keep him as the double agent behind the curtain. And it didn't help that she was a card-carrying British communist. I just didn't like that morally, but again, I'm going back to the whole overall theme of Le Carre, who says, basically, it's all a freaking game. There's no good guys. There's no bad guys. They're all cynical, selfish people out for themselves. And to kill anybody in that game, you know, if you buy what Le Carre is saying, ain't worth it. That was just my take. Yeah, so your why best. Is, why is Munt? I, under, I understand she's not a professional, but I mean, Lemus knows more than Munt. I mean, Lemus knows more than Nan. You know, why? Mm-hmm. You know, if. if uh, I understand, Maybe they had you to know, do that too pers- to pacify Munt. Maybe they had to agree. Maybe Smiley and company had to agree to keep him going like that. I could see Munt saying, you got to get rid of her because I'm too nervous back here. You got to get rid of that loose end. So I could see them bending to that. Yeah. You know, to his I don't wishes. Know who's, I still don't know whose decision it was, uh, ex, except Munt had to obviously be involved in it. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some best. Uh, uh, let's see. Okay, right. So we talked about this before. This is Lemus's reaction to Peter's showing him the news story. Now, inside, Lemus is clearly freaking the fuck out. And he'll demonstrate that to us through Richard Burton's acting once Peters leaves the room. But in the moment, what he's doing is he's, he's so right now his, what he's feeling is fear. What he's showing is anger. And that's great. He's blaming Peters. He's saying, you guys did this. You guys did this so that I wouldn't have a choice, which could be true. Uh, But Lemus doesn't know that. Uh, it's still it's absolutely the right play in that situation. And control um, would and control would say he didn't have the need to know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sure. best number two again. We just talked about it. Regardless of the decision to kill Nan, the fashion in which it was carried out is mm-hmm. a perfect crime. Uh, I give mm-hmm. that some plus five points. And my number one best goes to the movie. Again, I've not seen it. And, and talking about, you know, and I've said before, I thought this movie was a, like a little rushed, but this part of it was actually like nicely patient in a way that I haven't seen in any more modern films of like mm-hmm. going up this careful chain of little mm-hmm. fish to slightly bigger fish to slightly bigger fish. Loved it. Number one best. Yeah. And you've been a bad boy again, Fred. You've got five <laughs> bests. <laughs> I know. I'm so presumptuous, aren't I? You gotta exercise discipline. Give us three. When I, I know when I I know when I see them though, I think, how can I leave All them? Right. You wouldn't believe how many times I've crossed out. Otherwise I'd have <laughs> All right. My best number five is Fiedler gets Lemus to sign letters to banks. This was a long, drawn out thing but i thought that's this is good trade craft on, on on fiedler's part he gets lemus to sign all these letters to banks in copenhagen and helsinki asking for a statement of recent withdrawals which which was basically counter trade craft to operation rolling stone orchestrated by london that would reveal Munt being in the area during the time of withdrawals i thought that was pretty cool counter trade craft 
that Fiedler was doing it or that they had it, laid those breadcrumbs in advance for Fiedler to find. Well, that was, that's a whole other. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that he's trying to get Lemus to do that, I thought was counter regardless of the intention of, of London. Okay. Yeah, because they're outside, and I think he gets him to sign those letters. Uh, number four, Fiedler relates the remake Lemus controlled chain of communication that Lemus never knew the full extent of because each link of the chain was located as far apart as possible in what we now refer to as compartmentalization or need-to-know cells. So this also underlines the time when Control wanted to meet with Remick to supposedly thank him for his service while Lemus went out for booze. Number three, Smiley's visit. This is the one that is everything else circumstantially uh, lies on. Smiley's visit to the librarian, which you'll have to admit to the tribunal, which will circumstantially implicate London's involvement when Munt's lawyer reveals that her lease is paid. Number two, Operation Rolling Stone itself. It's also that I thought cool. really could re sorry, can I say really quick too that uh I think I think it's supposable that Munt knew what you know, because Nan has a really tough time remembering what it is they're asking about, right? Um Yeah, but she wants to know she's confused because all she wants to do is to help Lemus, but she doesn't know where it's going. And they say to her, you don't need to know where it's going. You just need to answer the question because she obviously wants to couch her answers to help Lemus, but they're right. not going to give her that. What I, what I want to underline is that like Munt must've known like control must've communicated to Munt to communicate to his attorney. Like, this is what you need to get her to say. She might not remember it and that's going to be great. She'll have a lot of trouble remembering it because it's a very small detail, but you need to just keep hammering on her on that point. So Another there's some thing that Lemus, of course, was kept in the dark about, there. right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. All right. Um, Number two. And just the whole Operation Rolling Stone that was an integral part of the plot orchestrated by London to make Lemus think that he was arranging bank accounts for an agent and Fiedler to think that the agent was Munt by his proximity to those withdrawals. And my best one was the whole plot orchestrated by London, not only unbeknownst to the East Germans, but their agent in the field, Lemist, who explained the plot to the librarian. I was sent to discredit him, meaning Munt, and you were sent to discredit me. All right. Those are some, those are some good ones. Now, uh, last segment of the show is our, our final park bench rating from past experience so far. I think I'm going to land lower than you. I want to tell you the ratings that we've given previous John Le Carre offerings. A most wanted man was a four out of five. That's pretty high for us, by the way, Tinker, to Tinker, Taylor, soldier spy. We gave a 4.5 and I stand by that. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, the night manager was also a four. I don't think I can, I don't think, I don't think this movie is as accurate in its tradecraft or has enough of it. And it's got some slight fantastic elements. And like we said, like maybe some shaky logic. I don't think I can put it up as high as a four with the night manager and with uh, a most wanted man. So my opening bit is a 3.5. Solid, 
solid but not spectacular. Okay, wow. Uh, all right, well. I'm using it. <laughs> 3.5 park benches for uh, uh, the spy who came in from the cold. And uh, yeah, he did not come in from the cold. He tried to come in from the cold. <laughs> Just yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah. All right, Fred, we'll catch you later. Okay. Good night. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.